These things betwixt explores the dark corners of our world, the abandoned places within, and esoteric thoughts perhaps better left unexamined. Listener discretion is advised. I'm ten years old, and it's my first funeral. My stepdad's mother, a woman named Margaret, who I now only remember in broad strokes, has died. I'm standing in a cold church sanctuary, in uncomfortable formal clothes, as the line of mourners shuffles forward, one morose step at a time. I feel grief, but in an abstract way like I'm marinating in the sadness of other people in the room. I grieve because they grieve. I cry because they cry. As I glance at the old pictures posted from when she was alive, I remember her as she was. A pleasant enough old British woman who I called Miss Margaret, who always had Tootsie Rolls and Werther's Originals for my sister and me. She owned a high-strung chihuahua named Pepper. She would smoke and flip through Watchtower magazines and call men pricks when they annoyed her. Before I get to the front of the line where the coffin is splayed open, a huge realization strikes me. This is the first time I've ever seen a dead body. It's an uncomfortable thought. What do I do? How do I act? Nobody ever really comes right out and tells you what's expected of a step-grandson who should be mourning. So I grieve because they grieve, and I cry because they cry. When I reach the front of the line, I look down at the woman who'd been just a few days earlier, breathing and talking and living. The figure in the casket didn't look much like the real thing. The skin was pallid, the stillness off-putting. I glanced to my stepfather for any kind of guidance. He steps forward, looks down at the woman who brought him into the world as tears trace down his leathery bearded cheeks. He leans down, kisses her forehead. I watch and learn. So this is what's expected. I take his place, and before my nerve breaks, I kiss her forehead too. I can't remember ever having kissed her while she lived, but I'll never forget the kiss I gave her at that moment. The scent, the sight, the feeling, the chill that refuses to leave my lips in the Kingdom Hall. I feel marked somehow. Like I've touched death. Now it can hunt me. Now it will find me. I've made a terrible mistake. I move away from the casket and the dead woman cradled within and sit in the pew. Stepdad hugs me. Says he appreciates it. Later, my mom pulls me aside and tells me I didn't have to do that. I don't remember what I said to her in reply. I just remember wishing my lips had never touched that cold skin. From that point on, 
I become a serial funeral dodger. A science teacher in junior high. Most of the students turn out for a service during the school day. A handful of others, mostly delinquents and troublemakers, decide to stay behind. So do I. My grandmother dies in Ohio. I can't really afford the plane ticket. I'm not sure I could make myself go if I wanted to. My partner's father. Someone has to stay and take care of all the animals. I volunteer and watch three dogs, a pig, a rabbit, and a cat during a bitter winter storm. And finally, my grandfather. I'm there for his final words to me, and it's already unbearable to see him shriveled and broken. I can't see him in death's grip, so I mourn 1,500 miles away as he's buried. Corpses are a poor way to remember the heart and soul and breath of one you love. How awful, how crass that at the end of your days, the last surviving images you give your loved ones are the poorest facsimiles of your personhood. Because I remember the slack skin. I remember the clothes that hung limp and strange. And I remember the cold that clung to my lips after I kissed Miss Margaret's forehead. I made a promise to myself that it wouldn't be a stuffed marionette my mourners remembered at the end of my days. No. I decided there wouldn't be anything left of me to gaze upon once I breathed my last breath. My name is Mark Belisle, and these things betwixt have been waiting for you. This is episode one, Tree Eaters. The question of what to do with a person's remains has long been a concern for humanity. Ur-humans chose sites to bury their dead close to where they would be camping, to keep the connection between themselves and their ancestors strong. It was a way to bridge life and death. As human thought grew past the more natural expressions of grief we share with elephants and chimpanzees, we began to marry death with religion. Humans have been cleansing, burying, and burning their dead for thousands of years. Each culture has its own traditions on the proper way to treat the dead. From crypts to cremation, the ways to honor and care for the deceased are countless. But those are the ways that are known. And this is, after all, a show about that which is hidden. And what is more hidden than the desiccated flesh of a mummified body? Shrouded in layers of ancient cloth, then concealed in ornate caskets and stashed in burial chambers far away from the sun's light, the mummy is equal parts macabre and occult, dead and staggeringly lifelike. The idea has long fascinated Western cultures. We've all seen the old movies, a raggedy mummy trailing gauze, arms outstretched for an archaeologist's buxom girl Friday. But the stories are just stories. 
and the movies are just cheap imitations. If you were to search out images of mummies, you wouldn't see the cleanly wrapped bodies of pop fiction. You'd see something much more grim. Skeletal remains with skin tighter than a drum. The teeth, sneering and bared for eternity, exposed by the desiccated and destroyed lips. Gnarled fingers hiding the face, covering the chest, grasping outwards. Most mummies have their eyes closed, but there are some that stare out into eternity with empty sockets. Scraps of leathery flesh cling to exposed skulls, shrunken arms cradle a corpse designed to last forever. And while most people associate mummies with Egypt, some of the most upsetting and well-preserved bodies of antiquity are found in the most frigid parts of the world. A mummy named Juanita was discovered in Argentina after having been frozen. She was so competently prepared that all of her internal organs were completely intact. A trio of mummies called the Children of Yuyayako have endured the ages. It's easily discernible how old they were when they were ritually sacrificed by the Incan Empire. But the most haunting corpse I saw was the mummy of a six-month-old boy discovered at Killakitsok in Greenland. He wears tiny reindeer skins and has a crown of shaggy black hair. The mummy looks at you with empty eye sockets and a slightly open mouth. It honestly looks like an awful doll that had once been alive. The urge to protect the physical form of one you love from decay and rot and oblivion is strong. You only really need to look at our modern embalming techniques and funeral technology for an example of how far people are willing to go to keep the illusion of life. Maybe that's why so many human cultures prepared their dead for mummification. Whether sun-blasted or freeze-dried, all these mummies have something in common. They all became mummies after they became corpses. After their death, the people who loved them, the people who shared a life with them, began the process so that they might be preserved for just a while longer. But sometimes, that very process began long, long before they drew their last breath. It begins with a man beneath a tree. Depending on the legend you hear, this man is the son of a noble who had never wanted for anything. He experienced all the worldly pleasures afforded to a young prince. Wealth, privilege, romance. He lived a life safe from suffering and death. He married and had a child. Yet his life tasted of ash and left only fleeting happiness in his heart. One day, the man left the palace walls and saw for the first time an old man, a sick man, and a corpse. He realized that every human life ended in the suffering and death his palace had protected him from. He renounced that life 
and joined a band of ascetics who swore off all worldly comforts in order to better consider the suffering of humanity. He lived among these monks for six years, yet still the cure to suffering eluded him. So he left them, swearing off both luxury and self-denial. He vowed to sit beneath a sacred fig tree, meditating until the path for enlightenment became clear. One night, with a full moon in the sky, enlightenment finally descended upon the man. When he opened his eyes, he no longer had want, no longer feared suffering. For the next 49 days, the man meditated upon the supreme joy he had found, partaking of neither food nor water. On that 49th day, Buddha rose and began to teach the people of India the Noble Eightfold Path. His teachings spread like cinders carried on the wind. After Buddha's death, they were brought to what would become modern-day Thailand, Korea, China, and eventually Japan. Like most religious teachings, Buddhism itself was filtered and understood through the local traditions already known to converts. In much the same way that Christians adopted the Roman Saturnalia for Christmas, Japanese mountain ascetics married esoteric Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and a local practice called Shigendo. The mountainous areas in modern-day Yamagata Prefecture would become the cradle for this sect. In 806, a monk named Kukai founded Shingon Buddhism near a sacred mountain. Like most of the holy men and ascetics in the Buddhist tradition, these men swore off what comforts feudal Japan could offer. They instead focused on spiritual acts. It was a commonly held belief that ascetic practices could give one supernatural powers. So they gathered and brutalized themselves in the hopes of enlightenment and transcendence. Stories about monks meditating deep in caves or beneath waterfalls are common. Other tales and local legends describe monks gouging out their own eyes. These practices didn't just cleanse the soul and expand their thoughts on the nature of suffering. Sometimes their effects were much more curious. It's said in legends that Kukai himself didn't actually die. In 835, he crawled into a tomb, sealed himself in, and entered into a profound state of meditation. That meditation acted as a state of suspended animation, where his disciples say Kukai will wait it for five million years or so. Then he will stir and gather some predetermined number of souls for Nirvana. When his followers disinterred Kukai, they found he looked peaceful, beatific. He was untouched by the grave. Even his hair appeared healthy and strong. His disciples laid upon Kukai many honorifics, renamed him Kobodayashi, which means the Grand Master who propagated the Dharma, and venerated his instruction. And his final act of meditation and teaching inspired countless others to follow his example. The Shingen monks called this transfiguration Sokoshinbutsu, 
which translates into Buddha and this very flesh. They imagined that if they followed Kobodayashi's example, they too could cheat death and return to help humanity in the far-flung future. And so began hundreds of years of trial and error. Although the bulk of Buddhist teaching concerns itself little with a person's physical form, that potent marriage of Shugendo supernatural powers with Buddhist enlightenment meant these monks cared greatly about their physical state. Preservation of the physical vessel was paramount. After all, these monks didn't plan to die. They planned to meditate for millennia. The first monk to try was named Shojin. The master entombed himself in 1081 in the hopes of joining Kobodayashi for the betterment of all humans. When his disciples came to examine his body, they found rot had settled on his corpse. So the Shingen monks set to work. Through repeated attempts, they discovered a way to preserve their physical form long enough to rejoin their masters on the day they were to awaken. They mummified themselves while they were still alive. It's one thing to mummify a corpse in the sandblasted heat of Egypt or the icy crags of South America. It's quite another to do it in the humid air of Japan on a body that was still very much alive. The monks were persistent and brutal in their methods. Finally, after generations of trial and error, they had a blueprint they could follow to become Sokoshinbutsu. When a monk announced to his fellow disciples his intentions, they came together to support him. What followed was a thousand-day cycle of strict meditation, dietary restriction, and absolute agony. The monk abstained from wheat, rice, soybeans, and millet. They were also refused meat and any beverages other than water. Instead, every day the monk would venture into the mountains and forage for food. In a dietary practice called tree-eating training, the monk made his meals from fruit, nuts, seeds, and sometimes berries. Any time not dedicated to foraging, the monk spent in meditation or doing exhausting exercises. Tree-eating training was designed to toughen the monk's soul for the hardships to come and to separate him from his humanity and physical form. It also served to cut the bulk from his body and deplete the muscle and fat on his bones. As time passed, the diet became stricter. The monk would long for the easy days of nuts and seeds when he began consuming pine needles, excavated roots, and even tree bark. At the end of a thousand days, the cycle was complete. For some monks, this signaled the end. For other, more determined souls, this was just the beginning. A second cycle of a thousand days would begin with tree-eating training still in place. How long have you gone without eating food? Hours? A day? 
Shingen monks adhered to tree eating training for three years. Three years of sharp pine needles, woody bark, and bitter roots. Three years of hunger and pain and suffering. Three years of grueling preparation. And upon completion of the second cycle, some monks looked at their bodies, their souls, and decided they were still found wanting. A third cycle would begin. For some who chose the path of Soko Shinbutsu, they chose ten years of this. And at the end of their third cycle, how many of them could even forage their own food? At this point, the monk had done all he could do to free his consciousness from his body. His final 100 days were agony. The devout monk cut out all food, foregoing even tree eating. The only nutrition they accepted during their final days were limited amounts of salted water and a special tea called urushi. The brew was collected from Toxicodendrum verniculum, a sumac tree prized for its resin which was used to make lacquer. The tree contained the same toxic compounds as poison ivy. Imagine drinking a tea made from poison ivy. The drink itself caused uncontrollable vomiting. It was a final cleansing the monk had to endure. Urashi granted the small mercy of hastening the monk's physical death. It also purged gut flora and rendered the body so toxic it became immune to decomposition. The final stage of becoming Sokoshinbutsu occurred when the would-be Buddha sensed his impending death. He told his fellow monks, and they carried him to a pine box dug into the earth. They placed him into the box in the lotus position, and surrounded it with charcoal. They inserted a bamboo straw for an air supply, gave the monk a bell, and then buried him alive. There, in the darkness, the monk would pray chant the sutra and meditate upon the salvation of humanity as he chanted he would ring the bell which told his assistants he still yet lived he would grow weaker and weaker until finally his heart stopped in the dark without the bell's ring the other monks knew the moment of truth was upon their brother they dug up the box, checked to make sure he was dead, and then reburied him for a thousand days. When that final cycle had ended, they disturbed him one last time to see if he had failed, or if he had become a true Sokoshinbutsu. If, when they opened the box, the body was rotted and picked clean by parasites, they exercised what was left reinterred the remains and honored their brother for the attempt. But if he was Soko Shinbutsu, a self-mummified Buddha transcending physical form, 
Then he was removed and dressed in fine robes and venerated as an object of worship. He had succeeded in joining Kobodayashi in Nirvana. He was given a place of supreme honor at the temple. Countless monks attempted the ritual. The exact number is lost to the ages. There were countless failures. But it was not impossible. There are 16 known Sokoshin Butsu in Japan. Each is venerated and kept safe within a Shingen temple. Each of them are lionized and sanctified by their fellow acolytes. The most well-known Sokoshin Butsu was a monk named Tetsumonkai. He started life as a commoner and at some point killed a samurai. The crime was a grave offense to a local daimyo. So he fled his home and joined the priesthood to protect himself from the wrath of the warlord. His escape guaranteed him legal immunity, but it forced him into a life of asceticism and deprival. Despite this, Tetsu Monkai excelled in the priesthood and was a compassionate soul. Once, he traveled to Edo, the site of modern-day Tokyo. While there, Tetsu Monkai heard about an eye disease ravaging the city. The monk, moved by the suffering of the people, chose to gouge out his left eye. With this charitable act, he hoped he could alleviate the sickness afflicting the people there. Tetsu Monkai ultimately embarked upon the path of Soko Shinbutsu and achieved his goal in 1829 at the age of 71. His mummified remains are still kept at Churinji to this very day. His self-mummification may have been inspired by a previous experience. For a time, Tetsu Monkai served as a priest and caretaker to another Sokoshin Butsu named Han Myokai. Han Myokai had been a samurai before he entered the priesthood. He was responsible for much death and bloodshed during his martial years. Perhaps he felt he had much to atone for. Han Myokai spent 20 years in ascetic training. By the time his tree-eating training was completed, the man was delirious with hunger and pain. His fellow monks rewarded him by burying him alive. Han Myokai ascended into nirvana like the precious few that came before him. The oldest monk to become Sokushin Butsu was named Shinyokai Shonen. He had lived a long life as a monk when he decided to try his hand at the process. After he turned 96, Shinyokai finished his tree-eating training and was lowered into his grave in the lotus position. He emerged fully ascended in 1793. Shinyokai's remains are currently in excellent condition today at a temple in Dainichibo. He sits in beautiful, ornate robes in the same lotus position in which he died. His skeletal grin waits with gentle patience for his eventual return to the material realm. Every six years, the monks charged with his care remove him from his glass case and carefully change the robes. The old cloth is trimmed and turned into amulets and sold to people who visit. 
For a thousand yen, or ten US dollars, you can hold tight a piece of cloth that once belonged to the oldest known Sokushin Butsu in Japan. The final monk to attempt the agonizing process was named Bukai, and he did so as a criminal. During the Meiji Restoration in 1868, the Emperor of Japan declared the process barbaric and outlawed it. Bukai didn't care. He was seen by others at the time as less of a holy monk and more of a madman. The times and culture had changed, it seemed. But for Bukai, none of that mattered. It must have been the loneliest cycle ever embarked upon. There were no other monks. There was no support. Just perpetual starvation and eventual desiccation. Bukai entered enlightenment in 1903, becoming the last monk to complete the ritual. His remains went undiscovered for almost 60 years until a university research team unearthed them and marveled at his pristine condition. He's now the last of the Soko Shinbutsu of Yamagata Prefecture. What could have motivated men such as these? Perhaps it was the allure of immortality that pushed them forward in the face of such suffering. But at what price? Three years of pain and agony and degradation. All for the chance to persist beyond the physical self. For a thing that wasn't even guaranteed. For those who would become Sokoshinbutsu, a different kind of faith was required. For them, all that suffering was worth it for the chance to better serve humanity to usher in a new age of enlightenment, to free themselves finally from the wheel of want and suffering. They were true believers. They were true Buddhas. What they did, they did for the betterment of generations to come. And in that regard, they weren't alone. Because far to the west, another method of corpse preservation is rumored to have flourished. And if pine needles and poison tea could cause such agony, imagine what something much sweeter could do if it was taken to such extremes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of These Things Betwixt. I hope you enjoyed the little walk down these enlightened paths of our world. It would mean the world to us if you rated and reviewed the show on your podcatcher of choice. If you don't feel like rating and reviewing, that's okay. 
You can always chant your feedback as a mantra while you peel the bark from trees for your supper. If you've ever seen one of the Sokoshin Butsu, or have a good recipe for Urashi, write into the show at thesethingsbetwixt.gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts and your spookiest stories. These Things Betwixt is a random draw production and was written and hosted by Mark Belisle, that's me, and produced and edited by super skeptic Dave Hubbard. Dave is a gourmand, but he made it quite clear that he prefers his tea significantly less toxic. The music in tonight's episode is Trees in the Wind by Daniel Birch. For more information and music to purchase, visit danielbirchmusic.com. Finally, I'm not fluent in Japanese at all. Apologies for the many ways I've probably mispronounced the names and things in this episode. As a final note, these things betwixt is a labor of love. Nothing makes me happier than exploring these strange stories with you. But it takes time, effort, and money to provide these episodes for your enjoyment. And until society collapses and we can go back to living in a feudal kingdom state, that's probably not going to change. I don't really have any interest in selling you underwear or website platforms or very curious pills, and I have zero interest in putting any of these episodes behind a paywall. So how about a compromise? If you have the extra dough and think this podcast was worth a buck or two, well, we wouldn't turn it down. Tip me and your friendly neighborhood skeptic Dave Hubbard on Venmo at randomdrawpod and help us keep the magic alive. Look us up on Venmo or check the show notes to help us out. And until we meet again, stay safe, open your mind, and keep watching the shadows.